Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network and the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by two extraordinary, brilliant women, Christina Horn-Scheeler and Kari Vosby-Anderson, who are authors of Women President, Confronting Post-Feminist Political Culture. This was published by Texas A&M University Press in 2013. So it's not exactly a new, new book, but it's particularly relevant these days. Um, And following on that particular text, we are also going to talk about um, Kari Vosby Anderson's edited volume, Women, Feminism, and Pop Politics, From Bitch to Badass and Beyond. This was published by Peter Lang Publishers in 2018. And um, as in so many things, Christina Horn-Sheeler is also a contributor to that book. Um, But I wanted to start out by um, welcoming Christy and Kari to the New Books and Political Science podcast and asking you each to tell us a little bit about yourselves and how you came to these really fascinating projects on women, presidentiality, popular culture, and communication and rhetoric. Welcome, Kari and Christy. Thank you for having us. Thank you, Lily. Well, I can jump in first in in terms of, um, you know, my research trajectory, my interests. Uh, Actually, we both had an interest in women and, and leadership for much of our careers to date. And our first book, um, written in, oh gosh, when was that published? 2005, Governing Codes. Uh, It was based on each of our dissertations. And at least for me, it was based on my research in um, on women and in state uh, executive positions, so women in positions of governors. And I was particularly interested at that time in Ann Richards, who was a governor of Texas, and Christine Todd Whitman, governor of New Jersey, and the styles and the strategies that they brought to state executive leadership. So fast forward to 2013, woman, which is when Woman President was published. But honestly, if I remember, I feel like we wrote maybe two or three different iterations of that, that manuscript. And so the first was in 2008 or so when Hillary Rodham Clinton was running, Sarah Palin was a candidate for the vice president, and of course Barack Obama uh, eventually re- uh, won the, the presidency. The very first iteration of that book, uh, we set out to write about what women candidates could do to be more electable. So we're really, we were really focusing on the women, the styles, the strategies, what they were doing, how they were positioning themselves to become president, vice president at the time. But then what we really discovered as we were into the research and writing process was that women were already doing the things that that research says they should do to be electable. And so the book really transformed into a a manuscript on our need for cultural change around our understanding of the presidency. 
Yeah, that's very, um, very true. And it, it, it was such an interesting journey back in, in 2007, 2008. Um, I personally had been studying Hillary Clinton um, since I was a master's student. I did my master's thesis on her health care reform campaign. Um, and then that kind of expanded into my dissertation on her political identity. Uh, and so I was learning more and more about gender and politics as Hillary Clinton was doing more and more um, as a very non-traditional political spouse and then U.S. Senator, Secretary of State. Um, she's just had, you know, all of these pivotal roles. And so now looking back, it's a really interesting, it's interesting to me uh, to look back on my own career and to look back on her careers, because we really sort of took this journey on learning about how, what our country thinks. Um, primarily, you know, our research has been has been grounded in U.S. culture. So, what what how U.S. voters respond to women in positions of power? And Hillary Clinton is an interesting case because although she, you know, famously lost the 2016 election, she also won the popular vote. And I think that that's a great sort of way to encapsulate how we deal with women in politics, right? Um, it's not that they never are successful, but there are lots of things in place, barriers in place that they have not yet cleared, both structural and cultural. Um, so, yeah, that's that that's what brought us to this question of of what do women have to do to be elected president? Um, they don't have to do anything differently. We need to change our culture. Of course, it's not the easy part. It's the hard part. Um, <laughs> um, but as we're talking about that, and obviously, as somebody who also studies the presidency and popular culture and questions of gender, there is this sort of understanding of the presidency, um, the office itself, the iconic nature of it, the symbolic quality of it, the cultural position of it. And and you go through in, in Woman President and you're talking about that and you're using this term presidentiality um, in, in sort of understanding not the office itself, but sort of all these dimensions of it. Can you both explain a little bit about the terminology, but also why it's important to understand the office more broadly in our cultural context, since that's what has to change? Yeah, so I can talk about, we um, borrowed the term from Sean Perry Giles and Trevor Perry Giles as um, they developed it in a book and series of articles uh, on the West Wing. Um, and their book was called, I believe, Primetime Presidentiality. Um, they theorized this notion of presidentiality to try to encapsulate um, the rhetorical interplay of how we understand all the different forces that shape how we understand the presidency and its position in our culture our national culture, our political culture. So, so I'm, for example, I am somebody that studies presidentiality, but I don't write about U.S. presidents in particular, at least not yet, because no women have been elected and I'm interested in gender and presidentiality. Um, so, uh, so presidentiality is is a term that the Perry Giles has developed to indicate a kind of rhetorical phenomenon that creates and constitutes the presidency. And I would add to that, just in terms of the way that we think about the the president's performing the office of the presidency, if you if you want to think about it that way, um, 
our understanding of what it means to be a president in the United States, um, they, they have sort of talked it into being. Pre previous presidents have sort of talked it into being. So what are the norms um, that sort of go unspoken or unquestioned about what we assume to be the case for the presidency. Typically, we think of uh, white, masculine presidentiality. Um, certainly, Bar Barack Obama um, modified that to a certain extent. But, you know, it's just those un under um, unquestioned things that fly under the radar in terms of what we assume to be normal for understanding presidents, the presidency in the United States. And in terms of that performative aspect, um, I would, if your listeners have not uh, encountered Kathleen Hall Jameson and Carlin Kors Campbell's Presidents Creating the Presidency Deeds Done in Words, they laid a lot of that theoretical foundation for the, you know, that we, that the Perry Giles built on and then that we built on. Um, so there's a, a really long trajectory in rhetorical studies on um, examining presidential performances. And, and you also build on the work by Mary Stuckey um, with regard to the sort of symbolic and and sort of cultural positioning of the president and the presidency, which I think gets to a lot of what you're talking about in women, woman president, um, because it's the culture that sort of consumes and understands the presidency in this kind of way. And as you said, that's what has to change, not so much the women running for the office or how they run for the office. Can you explain how the presidency kind of fits into our understanding of the United States, ourselves as citizens, um, and, and how, you know, that sorts the inflection point of our understanding of gender connected to it? Sure, I'll, I'll start out. By just a couple of, of examples, um, Mary Stuckey and other scholars talk about the president as sort of being representative of, of the people, um, representative of our best self in some way. Um, the, some of those scholars have also talked about the president as the paradigmatic American man. Right. And so right there is that gender assumption. And so, so then you extend on that assumption. It is the paradigmatic American man. He must have a spouse. So we're talking about heterosexual masculinity in terms of the way that the um, that we come to understand the presidency. And, and then there are certain roles that are expected, right? I mean, that gets into the, some great research on the first lady, which Kari has, has done a lot to advance as well in terms of that, that sort of supporting role of the spouse in, in terms of supporting the, the, the president as kind of the head of the family. And as we think about that, so, so Christy's exactly right. And as we hear that, though, it sounds it sounds kind of old fashioned. It sounds like, well, certainly we've moved beyond this. Right. I mean, there's women chief, chief executives all around the world. And, and certainly we've moved past this. We just haven't found a particular candidate we like. Um, I think that 
you know, the, the campaigns and elections that have happened since we published Woman President, unfortunately, only reinforce our central argument rather than challenge or suggest that we move beyond um, that notion of the presidency as this very masculine, white, masculine, heterosexual performance. Um, after Hillary Clinton lost the election, you, even even the Liberal Party in the United States said, yeah, it's probably too risky to nominate anyone other than an old white guy if we need if we want to get rid of Donald Trump. Uh, even the Democrats said that. Right. And and we're having that conversation again. That conversation has not gone away with the prospect of, you know, another Joe Biden term or sh or should we replace the vice president or, you know, all of that. We're still having that conversation. And in fact, it intensified. It got more true rather than less true. And I wanted to ask you about the examples that obviously you you use centrally in woman president in terms of Hillary Clinton's campaign and her symbolic positioning um, and also Sarah Palin, because both of them are presenting, you know, sort of a deviation from the norm and expectations. Now, obviously, Sarah Palin was following on Geraldine Ferraro's footsteps 30, 40 years later. Um, and Hillary Clinton was, in fact, um, following on other people, other women, Shirley Chisholm among them, who had run for president. Uh, but at the same time, she got a lot further um, and was taken more seriously, um, as you sort of note throughout the book. Can you talk about how these two women who don't exactly make similar bedfellows um, <laughs> uh, become sort of the, the Rorschach test in a certain sense of this idea? Absolutely. So there's there's so much that goes into the answers to that question. So, um, so the first thing that we have to acknowledge is that not all women candidates are feminist candidates and not all feminist candidates are women candidates. All right. So women and men can be feminist and non-binary people. Women, men, non-binary people can be anti-feminist or post-feminist. Um, so so yes, Hillary Clinton and Sarah Palin are both women. Um, Sarah Palin was actually the first conservative woman running for sort of high political office that called herself unapologetically a feminist, um, much to the chagrin of many feminists at the time. <laughs> you know, so but but the fact was in two thousand and seven she wanted to sort of claim that identity, right? However. Uh, if we look at their campaigns and the way and the challenges that they each posed or did not pose to to norms of presidentiality, we saw that whereas Hillary Clinton did represent a, a very strong feminist challenge, you know, as the as the as a presumptive presidential candidate, she would have been the commander in chief. Her spouse would have been the first spouse, um, you know, the first first gentleman. That's that's a completely different thing than a white woman who embraces uh, patriarchy and who is running to be vice president, um, which is already seen as sort of a submissive, um, you know role, political role. Um, so yes, with somebody as old as John McCain, you know, as is the case now with Joe Biden, when you put Sarah Palin on your ticket, you're saying, well, she might be the president. She could be the president. But one thing that 
um, Sarah Palin has done and, and that many Republican women, including some who are running for president now, um, do is is they very strategically, although they present themselves as as independent women and, and are and are often have, you know, professional bona fides in their rhetoric, they subordinate themselves to the patriarchal logic that governs the Republican Party, that governs Republican policy. Um, and whereas in 2008, Palin was eager to call herself a feminist, um, you've seen a switch in a post-Trump world because we've got, um, we're having conversations about about language, about terms, about wokeism, and feminism is once again seen as kind of a dirty word in conservative circles. Um, so I think when we're asking ourselves, you know, what do the accomplishments of individual women uh, in the presidential sphere mean? We have to keep in mind, yeah, the uniqueness of presidency as an office, the difference between the presidency and the vice presidency and what they represent culturally, and then the ways in which individual women candidates either challenge patriarchal norms or um let them lie and sort of say, I'm not going to disturb this too much so you don't have to be threatened. Um, and it, in go, that, ahead. go ahead, Lou. I was just going to say in, in terms of that um, great um, summary, um, Kari also sets up um, the explanation of Sarah Palin as really kind of this, um, you know, this example of what we mean by post-feminism. Right. I mean, she's someone at that time in 2008, she was someone who claimed that identity, but in a way that sort of said, you know what, we don't we don't really need um, 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 feminist, um, a feminist lens or a feminist um, point of view when it comes to policy decisions. We don't need to. Uh, look back on or question some of those structures or stereotypes that uphold the patriarchy and, in a sense, butt heads um, with feminism. So it, in that way, she embodies that, that almost contradictory nature of what post-feminism means, that, yes, feminism is a good thing, it's outlived its usefulness, and therefore we don't need to question the structures that have historically kept women from being successful um, in the, the presidential realm. And I just wanted to follow up on that, just so everybody has a clear understanding of what feminism is what post-feminism is, and what anti-feminism is. Who wants to take that one? I can take that one. Um, so feminism, we really like uh, Bonnie Dow and Celeste Condit's uh, definition of feminism, that is a movement for gender justice. Uh, we certainly ascribe to um, intersectional feminism. So feminism isn't, isn't true and productive feminism unless it... Um, addresses and opposes exploitation in the ways it differently affects people, depending on other aspects of their identity, right? So recognizing that white women and women of color are not positioned the same in the culture, all right? So, uh, and generally, I think feminism is aimed at collective and structural change, 
Um, so it's not just let's make it possible for individual women to get ahead, but let's make it possible for people of all genders to thrive. So that's feminism, um, which, of course, is good for all people, uh, not just people of one gender. Um, anti-feminism is sort of the polar opposite. It's the notion that feminism as a political movement did harm, um, that uh, equality, whether it's in the workplace or in, um, you know, military service or or it, it ha- in housework at home, um, that striving for equality in those circles actually has negative consequences for women and men and is sort of the source of cultural rot that leads to all kinds of disadvantages. That's what anti-feminists would charge. And, and that... That used to be sort of sublimated, I would say, 10 years ago when we were writing. Anti-feminism was certainly present in the culture, but not um, spoken about as as, um, explicitly as it is now. So it's sort of, as with so many things, Donald Trump made it speakable again to be an anti-feminist. So we see a lot of uh, explicit anti-feminism in the culture. Post-feminism is, as Christy was saying, that notion that, um, you know, feminism was necessary and good, but we've moved past it and we don't need it anymore. And so any discussion of of, uh, feminist politics now is uh, is not helpful or constructive. And I would say that post-feminism in the culture has sort of morphed into, or we're starting to talk about um, a fourth type, uh, well, a, a second type of false feminism. So post-feminism is not feminism. Um, and it's kind of morphed into neoliberal feminism. So neoliberal feminism was typified by, say, Sheryl Sandberg's uh, lean-in, Right. That notion that, OK, women have the tools at their disposal to to be successful at work, successful at home, you know, successful in the political sphere. They just need to work harder, be more assertive, make themselves known, demand more, all of that. Right. And, you know, famously, after her husband passed away, even the author of that book sort of disavowed that argument and said, oh, gosh, it's more complicated than I realized. Sorry, single moms. I didn't realize everything you had on your plate. Um, But neoliberal feminism is still very much in the culture um, and is very much a part of what we see, particularly in political culture and particularly with Republican women. Um, so you get a Nikki Haley or a Sarah Palin saying, oh, yeah, I could do anything my brothers, you know, did. And I and my parents taught me how to do that. And and that's what I'm I'm doing now. I don't need a political movement because I have freedom and liberty to act as I as I choose. Um, that would be a neoliberal feminism, which is, again, about indivi- the sort of individual women's economic success more so than it is about collective gender justice for everyone. And and so I wanted to ask you then, since we now have those laid out, we've got presidentiality laid out, um, and we've had a little bit of discussion of the actual folks who've run for office like Sarah Palin and Hillary Clinton, you also both integrate popular culture into the discussion of our understandings of presidentiality and the office itself um, as parts of our sort of thinking. Um, Can you talk a little bit about why popular culture 
venues are places where we, in fact, might engage some of these ideas? Yeah, so I can start with that. Um, I started looking at popular culture when I was reading surveys that said, you know, 95, 96% of, of U.S. voters say that they would be willing to vote for a qualified woman candidate from their own party, right? That's That percentage is consistent. It has been trending upward at least until 2016 um, for decades. But we didn't see that result happening even when very qualified and very popular women ran for president. And I started thinking to myself, you know, I don't think that surveys, particularly surveys that that um, gauge people's support for hypothetical women candidates, you know, a general women candidate, I don't think that those are the only or maybe even the best way to measure popular sentiment in the culture. I think another way and a way that, that we needed more people to do um, was measure how political culture was reflecting our views about gender and leadership. And so a great way to do that is to look at television shows that are popular. Um, you know, Bell Hooks talked about popular culture as having a pedagogical uh, function, right? That we learn how to, how to be who we are um, in the context of the popular culture that we are surrounded by. And so popular culture shapes us, but it also reflects who we are um, in really complicated ways, not in simplistic ways, but in really complicated ways. And so that's why, you know, people who are interested in power have been studying popular culture for a very, very long time, um, including you, right? Um, you, you've learned a lot from your work in this area as Thank well. You. <laughs> So, so I got interested in popular culture because I thought, you know what, that's really where we reveal who we are. Um, and as we have studied more and more examples of fictional representations of political women, we've been able to see patterns, um, patterns that do reflect attitudes that then play out in actual real world elections. So I'm interested in popular culture as a feminist scholar because it shapes who we are and it shows us who we are. And I think that issue of showing us who we are is really, really compelling too, Kari, because um, put another way, maybe this is crass, but you know, the folks who are producing these shows, they, they're certainly concerned with them selling, right? They're, they're concerned with people watching. And so if something is a little bit too off the mark, it's not going to have the audience in the same way that that a program that resonates with those things that that we have come to understand about um, about ourselves and about political leaders. And I mean, and I also always talk about the fact that, you know, Shakespeare was popular culture at his time. So, you know, we, we got legs to stand on here. Um, you can all go back to, you know, Xenophon and the Greeks as well. Anyhow, um, that aside, I wanted to sort of ask you to talk a little bit about um, where you see some of these examples in popular culture and what you found that was useful and interesting in our thinking about gender and presidentiality? So I can start with an insight that is 
it was sort of the first thing that we saw when we started looking at television series and movies that depicted women presidential figures in the early 2000s um, when we were first writing about this. And it's it's very relevant in popular culture and actual elections today. And that is the insight that um, in popular culture, the fictional women presidential candidates who we were supposed to like and root for um, didn't want to be president. They ended up as president through some you know, mishap, whether it's intergalactic thermonuclear war by robots in Battlestar Galactica, or whether it's an untimely death of the president uh, in uh, in commander in chief, right? Or whether it's Harrison Ford as president getting high Air Force One getting hijacked and Glenn Close is suddenly in the ready room uh, in charge of things as acting president. In all of these cases, um, women had, they weren't elected. They didn't campaign for president. They sort of ended up as president and often didn't want to be there. Now, there were women who did run for president represented in public uh, political culture and who did want have that as as a goal um, that as part of their professional ambition. But those women presidents typically were um, tragic figures or disastrous for the country, specifically um, the woman president in 24. Um, she was she was very specifically um, the, the plot of the woman president in 24 started in 2006. It was very explicitly, clearly a Hillary Clinton-esque figure. Um, And she started out really idealistic and successful, but then ended up um, ruining both her family and the country. Uh, And the country, of course, because it was 24, had to be saved by a white white man who was Keeper Sutherland. Um, So white masculinity in these texts often comes in to rescue the country when a woman president fails. So that we saw that early pattern. And then the way that that bled into actual political culture was that the real women who wanted to be president, who articulated, uh, you know, who, who threw their hats in the ring in presidential primaries, whether that was Hillary Clinton or much earlier Elizabeth Dole in the 2000 Republican presidential primary, those women were seen either as not credible candidates. Elizabeth Dole's uh, candidacy was not taken seriously in 2000. She didn't get any money. She didn't get any traction, even though she was much more popular as a political figure than her her husband, Bob Dole, who ran for president in 96. Um, so they, they either are not taken seriously or they are seen as dangerous themselves. And that's really how Hillary Clinton was cast, as somebody whose ambition was crippling to her, would be bad for the country, um, and and who, who was unlikable, who was broadly unlikable because of her, her ambition. And I think the third thing that I'll say to sort of illustrate this point is if we look more recently, we can see how our, our feelings about particular real world women politicians have changed once they articulated a desire to be president, right? So when Hillary Clinton lost in 2016, what a lot of people said is, you know, the Clintons have so much baggage and we don't like Hillary Clinton for all of these reasons, but you know who we really like? Elizabeth Warren. If we could find somebody like Elizabeth Warren to run for presidency, we would absolutely get behind her and she would be successful. Elizabeth Warren heard that took everybody up on on the chatter, said, great, 
I'll throw my hat in in 2000 and 2020. And what happened? She was deemed unlikable. All right. She was deemed problematic. Um, and, and those are just two examples. And we could tell you many, many more. Um, and then in, in popular culture, we're seeing the cycle repeat again with a series like The Diplomat that is a really complicated series that I many of what many of the things about it I really like. Um, but but it it fit into this pattern as well. All right. You have Carrie Russell's character who doesn't want to be president actively resists attempts to suck her into the vice presidency and later the presidency. Um, and she is portrayed as somebody who is competent, who the audience is supposed to root for as being a leader, right? Because uh, she, she doesn't have that crippling ambition that makes us suspicious of women. The problem is that in real presidential culture, you actually have to want to be president in order to be president. And that kind of ambition often is problematic for women to display because then you become Lady Macbeth. There's like no middle ground. Exactly. Well, and one thing that I that I should add is that in our popular culture, um, let's take a look at how male presidents are represented. Now, there are lots of examples of uh, venal male presidents, the sort of, you know, the House of Cards version of the male presidency that is out there. But there are also competing examples that are very popular of white men who and black men who wanted to be president, who were very ambitious, but were also very good at the job and good for the country. And two examples that I would hail is sort of Martin Sheen in the West Wing and also um, the president in 24, uh, Dennis Haysbert's character. Uh, who was president for a couple of series. And and again, he was um, portrayed, you know, not as, not in an unproblematic way, because in our prestige television, you know, characters are thankfully more complex, but, but we were both, they were both sort of heroic and trusted figures, so much so that that actor started um, endorsing life insurance, <laughs> because he was seen as one of the most trustworthy people uh, in the culture when that series was on. You know, just imagine um, the woman president from 24 being asked to to hawk life insurance. That wouldn't have happened because she wasn't trustworthy enough. Of course not. Jerry Jones can't do it, but, you know, Dennis Haysbert can. <laughs> Um, so I wanted to switch gears slightly as we started this conversation about popular culture and move on to the more recent book, Women, Feminism, and Pop Politics, Kari, that you edited, um, From Bitch to Badass and Beyond, um, and um, also that you have also been sort of doing some presentations on a Danish show called Borgen, and if any listeners haven't seen it, rush out and watch at least the first three seasons immediately. Um, I, I mainlined that when I first found it. I was living in England, and I was just like, I didn't turn my computer off for like three days. Um, and it's a fascinating, again, representation of uh, the Danish parliamentary system with a female prime minister. Um, but you take on a lot of different uh, sort of popular culture artifacts in this book. Um, 
and uh, Christy has a lovely chapter on one of my favorites, Veep. Um, and and so I just wanted to talk a little bit more about you know sort of what's going on in this book itself, um, and and even the dichotomy that you set up in the subtitle bitch and badass because you sort of dissect that in the introduction to the book. Yeah. So uh, I got those two terms as kind of bookends for this book because, you know, obviously they're, they're terms that are circulating in the culture still, but when, when we published the book, they were really very present in the culture. The first academic paper I ever published was on bitch as a constraint in, in politics for women. Um, And so I've been, I've, uh, both Christy and I have been interested in archetypes of female identity, and we've looked at the archetypes of women's identity that have been applied to political spouses, women governors, uh, leaders in the United States, as well as internationally. I can let Christy talk a little bit about, she studied um, women's position in parliamentary political culture and how it's a little bit different than in our presidential culture. Um, But for the book, what I really wanted to do is draw attention to these two archetypes and say, you know what? They're both limiting. Uh, Neither one is great for women, but talking about how they are manifest in our popular culture gives us a good foundation to operate from when we're then reading media narratives about actual women candidates. If we can talk about how these stereotypes and catch-22s and double binds manifest themselves in these pop culture texts that a lot of us have access to. Um, it gives us a way to understand these processes that is removed from the, oh, this is who I'm voting for, or this is who I'm voting against, because it's really hard to change people's minds um, around somebody that they've already voted for or they've they've committed to voting for. It's, it's a little bit easier to get people to open up and think in new ways around a fictional text. Um, so I was interested in just getting a bunch of fish, fictional texts um, and having us talk about, all right, what do we see going on in the culture? So I can, I can let Christy talk a little bit about kind of what she's found in her research, both for that book and, and in other contexts. Thanks, Kari. I have a chapter in that book on Veep, which was the character Selena Meyer. She was uh, played by Julia Louis-Dreyfus, and for, I guess Seinfeld fame, SNL, um, a, a woman, a comedian who I, who I just love. Um, and she um, brings her, you know, sort of in-your-face humor to Selena Meyer's character. What's interesting about this show is that from the opening credits, Selena Meyer does not um, subscribe to the same um, – lack of ambition that other, other televised uh, vice presidential or presidential female candidates do. Right from the opening credit, you know she wants to be president. Uh, there's a scene where uh, her character is talking with a little girl, and the little girl says, oh, I want to be vice president someday when I grow up, just like you. And sort of under her breath, Selena says, no, you don't. You want to be president. 
so right there, you know, her, her ambition is over the top. Um, her humor, her vocabulary, I mean, everything about it, it, it the show in, in one instance is funny, but what it's really doing is poking fun at all of the seedy backroom dealings of Washington, D.C. political culture. So in that way, it's not at all a favorable look at, at Washington politics in the United States. Interestingly, when she is vice president, when Selena is vice president, you never see the president. You never see the white male president for whom she she is the vice president. So, you know, from a narrative structure, from a visual structure, she becomes that embodiment of all that is ugly, all that is unseemly, all that is corrupt um, about Washington culture. And then, of course, she embodies all of those norms that we don't necessarily associate with femininity, right? I mean, there is nothing um, submissive or supportive really about her in that president, vice presidential role in, in support of, of the president. And so at every turn, the narrative structure and the vis visual structure of that show um, sort of writes this storyline that the vice presidentiality, female vice presidentiality, it's sick, it's conniving, it's overly ambitious, and it's not to be trusted. And then that transitions with her when she does become president, but she never wins. She's always undermined. She's always the butt of the jokes. Um, there's sort of a strange um, episode where, okay, Lily, can I say the C word? Um, when someone called Selena a cunt. And that word, I mean, the fact that I felt like I had to ask, right? But that word is spoken like any other word in in the show, right? And so what does that say about what has become speakable in terms of women presidentiality? And and Selena charges one of her staff members to find out who called her a cunt. And in the end, what you find out was that it was everybody. So just just the the way that that character is depicted, she's not likable. She embodies all of the things that are crummy about Washington, D.C. politics, but then again becomes this embodiment of why we should not trust women in that presidential role. Although all the men are equally terrible, too. Yes. <laughs> yes. Like, everybody's terrible. <laughs> well, and I think that's, I think it's really... Um, important to look at satire at sort of, okay, who is the butt of the joke and what, what is being said, what arguments are being put forth in that satire. And so there in these complex series that run for multiple seasons, it's possible to find textual evidence for a range of arguments. Right. Um, but I really liked in the book, um, we put the Veep chapter and the Parks and Rec chapter back to back. Um, and they, they concluded the book because I really saw those as contrasting depictions of democracy. Um, 
rhetorician Kenneth Burke famously said that, you know, literature or rhetoric is equipment for living. Um, so we use popular cultural texts to sort of um, get tools for living in the world around us. And so Veep as a satire uh, gives us all of the tools to recognize a failing democracy. And along the way, it also um, sort of disciplines uh powerful women, powerful men, uh, in all of these sort of ways that are familiar to us in the culture. Parks and Recreation, I thought, was is an interesting cultural text because Leslie Nope um, is very ambitious, right? She's she is the the exception that maybe proves true this rule that we've been talking about. She sort of famously aligns herself in the first episode with, you know, <laughs> Hillary Clinton, Madeleine Albright herself as somebody who works in the Perks Department in Indiana. Um, she, she sees them all on the same plane. Now, now famously, in the very last season, you know, she becomes governor of Indiana and there's some suggestion that she might eventually become president. But for the lion's share of the series, all but the last few episodes, um, I think her ambition is not seen as um, threatening because she is this local politician. You know, city councilor is the is the height of her her um, attainment of her power until the very end of the of the season. And so, I think her ambition is allowed because it is not making aims or designs on vice presidentiality or presidentiality. And what I love about Parks and Recreation is that I think that it it um, provides a model of a functioning democracy where um, you have women and men, uh, people of all genders working together, where they where democracy is functional and solves problems. Sometimes the problem is turning a pit into a park, <laughs> um, you know, and then that's not world peace, um, but it does show that that compromise and change is possible. Uh, you have people of various political persuasions, whether it be, you know, a pro-government optimist like Leslie and a, you know, libertarian individualist like Ron um, actually, seeing one another's strengths uh, and, and without denying their foibles, the foibles and weaknesses of these characters, right? And so I really, I think if we look at what made Veep popular and what made Parks and Rec popular, um, their popularity in both cases can tell us a lot about how democracies can function and how they can fail. And, and I definitely agree that the satire is also complicated um, when we're trying to sort of suss out questions of gender and presidentiality and politics, um, because it is often, you know, sort of contorted. And certainly Veep is quite extreme um, and absurdist. Um, and, and then we got somebody who was kind of like Selena Meyer in the White House. And so then it became like normal. Um, I, I did want to ask a little bit about 
um, some of the differences that that you're also sort of teasing out um, within some of the chapters here by other authors um, in terms of U.S. presidential politics and and parliamentary systems, particularly European parliamentary systems, where we have in fact seen you know Margaret Thatcher and Liz Truss um, and Theresa May and Golda Meir, obviously a long time ago in Israel. Um, go ahead and and you know we also have seen these these portrayals where parliamentary systems may make it a little bit easier. Well, I think that's certainly um, plausible. For example, I've, I've studied the rhetoric of Angela Merkel, right, in Germany. And there is no question that she is, she was a powerful leader. Yet she came to power in, in a, that different sort of system that demanded coalition building, right? I mean, it's it's not the winner-take-all system of our U.S. Um, politics, but instead it's a, about party politics and particular units of parties um, uh, earning a majority of the vote. And so it often requires leaders of parties to work together in order to, to gain that coalition. And so just in terms of the you know, the way we talk about it, the way we think about it, we, I would argue, and I have argued, we are much more comfortable with women leaders when they come from sort of this collaborative or, or coalition building political culture, because for, for whatever reason, that is more in line with sort of normative femininity, if you will. Women are relationship builders. We build bridges. And and so that, I would argue, worked um, to Merkel's advantage, worked um, to, you know, the advantage of other women who came up in the, the parliamentary system. And I can piggyback on that uh, and circle us back to talking about Borgen um, and how this is playing out in the international pop cultural stage right now. Um, so I, I have to give a spoiler alert. Um, I may be giving away a few key plot points for those who've not seen Borgen, which originally came out in 2010. So, you know, um, let that be a lesson. Pay attention to international pop culture as well. Um, yeah, so Borgen came out in 2010, and it's a Danish program about a fictional first woman prime minister of Denmark. Um, women, um, a woman, two women have been elected as Denmark's real prime minister since Borgen came out. And in fact, some people argued that Borgen paved the way for a woman prime minister in, in much the same way that people argued that 24 paved the way for a, our first black president. Um, you know, not 100% credit, but, you know, it, it was not, um, it was a piece of the cultural picture. So what's interesting about Borgen and about Danish political television is that Danish public television, there's a, a requirement that any um, show that the Danish government funds needs to have a sort of moral um, lesson attached to it. Like it needs to do some public good. Um, so when the showrunner for Borgen conceptualized this show in 2010, he wanted to do a story about the fictional first uh, woman prime minister, but he was particularly interested in looking at how sexism really did, how structural sexism um, 
made things harder for women in politics and also for women in the media. There's another uh, ca- character, uh, Katrina Fosmark, who is um, in like, she's like a, a news anchor, essentially like a cable news anchor. And so we follow Brigitte Newborg, the prime minister and Katrina and their journeys in Danish politics as, you know, in news organizations and in, as the prime minister. Now, this is a complex, it's sort of a, it's, it's a prestige television show. And so um, there are no simple storylines in Borgen. But for the first three seasons in 2010 through 2013, um, it really was a, quite a feminist show. Um, in fact, I think that's one of the reasons why it was popular. Um, people were kind of responding to Hillary Clinton's loss in 2008 and looking for more hopeful pictures of, of you know, women's executive political leadership. It was well run. A lot of people called it the Danish West Wing because it was written really well. Um, And in that show, um, Brigitte Newborg, um, she doesn't come out unscathed. Um, In fact, her marriage falls apart. Um, But she and her husband stay collaborative partners. They, they, you know, collaboratively raise their children. And in the at the last of the first three seasons in 2013, she kind of retained her status as an idealistic, ambitious, successful, caring, multi-layered woman politician. So a lot of people liked Borgen. Ten years later, in 2022, um, they the showrunner partnered with Netflix this time to bring a fourth season of the of the show back. And so last year we had a fourth season of Borgen. And interestingly, they took all the same characters, all the same actors, and just moved them forward as if ten years would have would have transpired. Um, I don't have time to go into all of the the plots, ins and outs, but I will just say for the purposes of our discussion today, they basically reversed every message that they sent about feminism in those first three series. And they said, you know what? Being prime minister wrecked Brigitte's family. It was bad for her party. And ultimately, it led to political compromises that undermined her ethical sensibilities. Um, so it, it, it did the 24, it gave her the 24 treatment that Cherry Jones got um, much earlier. For me, that was a wake-up call because everything that Christy and I had written before about parliamentary systems, both in popular culture and in actual political culture, followed along the lines of what Christy just talked about, you know, why they were more hospitable to women and feminist politics. Um, To me, Borgen stands as a real uh, wake-up call that like, okay, now this these ideas that have infected U.S. presidential politics are going global. And that's something that we need to pay attention to and address. And so my final question and following on that is, what are you working on? Are you following those questions forward um, in terms of both the sort of real politics and the fictional presentations? Yes. So I have kind of two projects right now that I'm really excited about. One is, yes, um, I just 
published, uh, or not, I'm sorry, not published, I just presented some of the early research on Borgen at the Rhetoric Society of Europe conference um, and had the privilege to talk to some Danes about Danish politics. <laughs> so I wasn't just imposing my U.S. American framework onto their political culture. Um, and so that was really, really helpful. But I'm, I'm writing a paper on Borgen and the diplomats uh, and, and talking about the similarities and differences between those two shows. And 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 this yeah, what does this mean in sort of the presidential politics in an international context? So that's one project. Um, the other project that I'm working on right now is uh, looks at representations of gender and political leadership in superhero comics, uh, particularly superheroines as elected officials. Um, I'm uh, working with a graduate student, Ryan Green, uh, and we've been really fortunate to be able to present our research uh, at a couple successive Comic-Con um, academic conference held at Comic-Con. What I will say to your readers uh, just a little tidbit about that is if you want to see some feminist electoral politics in comics, read 1970s Batgirl. Um, there's an appearance of Bella Abzug in one of those comics, and it's a really feminist forward uh, storyline, Batgirl in the 1970s in Detective Comics and Batman Family. Um, stay tuned for more research from me about that. Cool. And Christy? Well, and Lily, my my um, research has taken a little bit different trajectory. As Kari knows, perhaps um, uh, you might call it uh, the dark side. I've gone to the dark side, and I am now basically a full-time administrator as a dean. And so my research has really morphed into sort of higher ed kinds of things um, about uh, belonging and um, engagement by college students. And I'm also, of course, I guess thinking about my own leadership trajectory. And so what sorts of things am I putting into play? What sorts of knowledge am I am I bringing to bear based on this career that, that I've amassed in terms of studying women in, in the political realm? And how can I um, personally implement those sorts of lessons in in my own leadership awesome both 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 works both directions of works or the three directions of work sound really fascinating um and if you either of you have new books i'm always willing to talk to you about them um edited single author multiple author doesn't matter um but i would love to thank christina horn sheeler and Kari Vosby Anderson for joining me today to talk about Woman President Confronting Post-Feminist Political Culture, published in 2013 by Texas A&M Press, and also Women, Feminism, and Pop Politics, edited by Kari Vosby Anderson, From Bitch to Badass and Beyond, published by Peter Lang, and of course, including an excellent essay um, by Christy Anderson. Thank you for joining me today. Is there any place that you would like to give a shout out to in terms of a brick and mortar store where folks can purchase your books? So I will give a, a shout out. And before that, let me just thank you again for the opportunity to be on this podcast. I am a listener. I learn um, from my 
my colleagues that are on your program every week. And it's been a real privilege to have this conversation. Um, I will give a shout out to the old firehouse bookstore in Fort Collins. Um, I'm not, they have a wonderful brick and mortar store, but like many independent bookstores, you can also order from them online. Um, and so that would be an easy way to both support local bookstores um, from anywhere in the country uh, is take a look at these independent bookstores, online stores. And I know old firehouse bookstore, um, can get you our books if you are interested. Thank you. Um, and thank you both. It's been a pleasure and an honor to talk to you about this excellent research. Thank you, Lily. It's It's been a lot of fun. It's been fun to, to talk uh, with my co-author as well. We don't have the opportunity to do that as often as we should. Um, all right. Thank you both.